from the CDC from earlier this week that confirmed what we've long suspected about public swimming pools, which is that they, along with cookout potato salad, are probably the reason why you have midsummer diarrhea. What I'm saying, what the CDC is saying, and what I'm sure everyone's mother has long been saying is that public pools are nasty. They're kind of more like cesspools. But look, I get it. Summer vacation is almost here, and I can attest to the fact that the city pool keeps many kids out of trouble. The CDC knows this too, and they are all for people getting pool-related physical activity and summer fun. Their simple plea, which is, I think, a plea that we can all agree on even if we didn't realize we needed to make it specifically, is that you don't go to the pool if you have diarrhea. I know what you're thinking. Why the hell would anyone want to go swimming if they have the shits? The only logical scenarios I can think of would involve Titanic-esque ship sinking coupled with completely justifiable nervous poops, but then we'd be talking about the open ocean, or at least a very large lake, or at the very, very least, a body of water that you did not perhaps willfully choose to be on in that moment when your bowels turned on you, and further, a situation that we all understand you cannot quickly or easily extricate yourself from. Such would not be the case with the local pool, I shouldn't think. So if you bring your infectious diarrhea, no matter how unexpected there, then I'm going to assume that a choice was made. A strange and somewhat selfish choice. Now, if you've ever had a pool at your house or been to a friend's house because they had a pool because their dad worked for IBM or something, then you know that there is a lot of maintenance involved. And a lot of that maintenance has to do with keeping the water clear and germ-free. Disinfecting public pools, which have a much higher turnover rate than your friend's house, except for maybe like that one week in August, you know the one. Thus, while it's down to an infection prevention science, it's still tricky. And those waters get, or should get, regularly tested for nastiness by municipalities who are operating under the guidance of places like the CDC who urge us, naturally, to have our shit together when it comes to keeping pools clean. Because as this most recent report indicates, they are brimming with bacteria. If you shout Marco, you are going to hear Cryptosporidium. Crypto, for short, no, not that crypto, is a parasite that causes diarrheal illness and before you say, yes, I know, duh, that's why we use chlorine, the CDC and me want you to know that crypto is actually pretty resistant to chlorine treatments and accounts for nearly 60% of illness outbreaks linked to pools in the United States. These usually tend to occur in hotels and hot tubs are then included in this mess because there's all kinds of drama brewing in those. And not just of the gastro intestinal kind either. And it doesn't take much. It doesn't take full-on poop in the pool. Even if someone, probably a kid, doesn't wipe effectively and there's fecal matter available to freely float into the water, should you happen to be butterflying in the vicinity and suck some water down, well, those parasites are gonna be taking up residence in your gut. Now, since I recognize that I am probably more intrigued by diarrheal disease than most people, I decided that the part of this story worth digging into for an episode is actually a far simpler question than why does someone with diarrhea go swimming? It's how long has this even been a possibility? Like, how long have we even had public pools? And were they always this gross or is that kind of new? 
public swimming pools of today have their origins in public baths that date back to the 3rd millennium BC. And the ancient Greeks and Romans built them for everything from training athletes to creating indoor fishing ponds. Basically, if you could dig a pretty good hole and had some stone and a water source, you could build yourself a bath. And actually, by the 1st century BC, the Romans had even figured out how to heat them. So there you go, heated pools. Throughout history, pools being specifically built for people was either about taking a bath or was somehow linked to swimming, either as sport or for leisure. Though it makes sense that people who swam competitively would be more eager to have a pool of their own or access to a pool regularly than someone who really only cared about taking a dip for like a couple of weeks between July and August or one very drunken winter eve. Now, post the First World War, competitive swimming, especially Olympic level, became much more formalized, and thus athletes competing in these events needed a lot more practice if they were going to master the techniques and the rules. While having a pool at home was something of a status symbol, the development of public pools was almost more of a public service, or in the case of hotels and clubs, an amenity to draw business, especially, I would think, in the parts of the world where you could swim more than like just a few weeks between mid-June and late August. Now, some complexes were designed around pools, as are even the most podunk of side-the-road motels, but there are others like resorts or spas that have much more elaborate setups and sometimes even entirely separate buildings for a pool, which are called natatoriums. Now, like any swimming pool, public pools can be pretty much any size or shape, though because they're meant to accommodate a lot of people at one time, they're usually built with that in mind. So think rectangular with a deep end and a shallow end and a slide or a diving board and maybe some other weird stuff if you're at, like, I don't know, some kind of a water park. They also usually have facilities for people to change in and out of bathing attire, and many public pools, keeping infection prevention in mind, require pre- and even post-showering. Other safety measures include lifeguards, which, depending on where you are both in location and history, could run the gamut from a local high school swim captain to former President Ronald Reagan. The girl guards continue their watch. Suddenly out there, someone is in difficulty. Now, we briefly touched on the social life of the pool, that having a pool at home in America is often an indicator of wealth, and that the quality of the pool, both in design and maintenance in a municipality, will probably tell you something about the community that it's in. But public pools also have a social history in and of themselves. In the Victorian era, the first true summer spent at the public pool experiences were had by ruffians, usually child laborers who would be heading to the seaside or lakes to cool off and then offend all of the rich people with their filth. So cities began constructing public pools in immigrant neighborhoods, which could also be used as communal baths, so that nobody would have to look at the poor kids all summer. What's interesting here is that this was pre-germ theory, which is kind of an excusable reason for people to be floating in these really dirty pools. But then we figured out how germs spread like well over a century ago, and yet we are still dealing with shitty germy pools. So I don't know. Anyway, throughout much of the 19th century, pools were actually among the more diverse places that you could go in a city. While there were separate swimming days for men and women to keep up with sort of the 
chastity requirements of the century. Prior to the First World War, they were not racially segregated. But once rich people got in on the whole public pool vibe and demand went up and suddenly men and women were swimming on the same day, then all of a sudden it was like, oh geez, we don't want to promote mixed race relations, so let's not piss off the rich white people by telling them that their whole family can't swim together, let's just racially segregate the pool. And thus the public pool was no longer all that public. And at the same time, there was a narrative that these now all-white pools were somehow more pure, that they were more austere. And the design of them and where they showed up in cities and spas and backyards and front yards or courtyards or living rooms of big mansions started to reflect that. But as the century wore on and more upper-class white Americans were earning enough money to have their own damn pools, they stopped going to the city pool. And then desegregation in the 1950s meant that the city's non-white kids could finally go to the pool without fear of being told that they could look, but better not touch, the water on a blisteringly hot July day. And in fact, that's when the tides of the pool turned. All of a sudden, the public pool was predominantly a community hub for minorities or inner city kids. Those kids who had been the ragamuffins of the previous century now were outside and visible and free to be part of the communal space. White people, meanwhile, were swimming alone in their backyard, probably behind a fence that they put up not so much to keep people from looking in at them, but to make sure that they wouldn't have to see anything they didn't want to. So for this episode, I read a very interesting interview with historian Jeff Wiltz, who wrote an entire book on the subject, which I think would make for excellent summer reading. It's called Contested Waters, A Social History of Swimming Pools in America. You should definitely check it out. I'm not really a pool swimmer myself. I've been far too spoiled growing up and still living with the ocean in my backyard. And the salt water might sting your eyes, but I can't say that it has ever given me diarrhea. And it's also like a nice social outing. I mean, it's not something that somebody can just go to and act like they own the place. You can't put the whole ocean in your backyard, Sharon. <laughs>